You cannot separate the individual from the environment and you cannot separate the mind from the body. And so when people are living in a stressed culture, they have stressed minds and stressed minds result in stressed bodies. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is a renowned speaker and best-selling author, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's highly sought after for his expertise on a range of topics, including addiction, stress, and childhood development. For 12 years, Dr. Mate worked in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by hardcore drug addiction, mental illness, and HIV, including Vancouver's supervised injection site. As an author, Dr. Mate has written several best-selling books, including the award-winning In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, and the book When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress. His works have been published internationally in 20 languages. To get a free download of Eric's favorite Gabor Mate quotes, go to oneufeed.net slash me. And here's the interview with Gabor Mate. Hi, Gabor. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I am really excited to get you on. You're known as a real expert in the field of addiction as a recovering heroin addict and alcoholic myself. It's a topic that comes up a lot on the show and we talk about, and we'll talk a lot about your book in the realm of the hungry ghosts, um, as well as your forthcoming book that's yet to be released. But first, let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. 
the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. The parable is a helpful teaching tool as a metaphor, but truth to tell, and despite the fact that this is the theme of your program, I don't find it a compelling understanding of what life is all about because it would all be rather easy if feeding the good wolf would be a matter of choice. And then we could all thrive and do well and have great relationships and uh, great jobs and great bodies and great, and great souls for that matter. But is it a matter of choice? I've never found a single addict who actually chose to be an addict. I don't know anybody that wakes up one morning and says, my ambition in life is to become a drug addict or a sex addict or a shopping addict or a food addict or an internet addict or a gambling addict or any other kind of addict. So, first of all, the metaphor implies a freedom to make that choice. And of course, freedom is a subtle thing, but it's not as clear as that metaphor in that story would have it. We can talk more about where I think addiction comes from, but let me just make the first point that it's not so much a matter of choice. Secondly, the good and bad implies an acceptance and um, oh, celebration of the one and a rejection of the other, a condemnation of the other. So there's a judgment involved, different parts of ourselves, some of which are good, others are bad. On the contrary, I find that it's those parts that we consider bad that we have to be most compassionate with. That's the part of us that we have to understand. That's the part of us that we have to recognize what role that so-called bad wolf actually played in our life why he or she came along and why we became so attached to it. Now that takes understanding and some what I call compassionate curiosity and some willingness to accept. So the split between the good and the bad, uh, the good wolf and the bad wolf, psychologically to me is hurtful. And secondly, as I said in the beginning, it's not so much a matter of choice as a matter of actually seeing where both those parts of ourselves arise from. So I could say more, and yes, uh, by all means, we should, as best we can, feed the wholesome, healthy parts of ourselves. But we have to have a lot of understanding and compassion for that other part as well. Without that, we will never liberate ourselves. Well, that is a great way to lead into it. And one of the things I did want to talk about, uh, we'll get to in a little bit, is that idea of freedom or choice and how much freedom and choice do we really have in certain situations. To start off, I would like to just read a paragraph from very early in the book um, to give people a sense of, of, of what the title of the book means. And I think it's a really beautiful description of a really awful state. You say, the inhabitants of the hungry ghost realm are depicted as creatures with scrawny necks, small mouths, emaciated limbs, and large, bloated, empty bellies. This is the domain of addiction, where we constantly seek something outside ourselves to curb an insatiable yearning for relief or fulfillment. The aching emptiness is perpetual because the substances, objects, or pursuits we hope will soothe it are not what we really need. 
And I think that is a great description of a really awful state and uh, paints a real picture of addiction. But the first question I'd like to ask you is, what is addiction? That's a widely disputed uh, topic, and there's lots of different ideas on it. But I'd like to see if we can come up with uh, a working definition for the rest of this conversation. That's great. And that'll also allow me to go back to your quote about hungry ghosts and, and make a comment about it. So addiction for me is... Well, it's a complex physiological, psychological, neurobiological, social, cultural uh, phenomena, but the essence of it shows up in behaviors which may have to do with substances, but it could also be non-substance related, like sex or gambling, food, and so on, such as I've said before. So any behavior that a person craves finds temporary pleasure or, or relief in and then suffers long-term negative consequences as a result of, but is incapable of giving up despite those negative consequences. So the features of addiction are craving, relief, temporary pleasure, negative long-term consequence, inability to give it up. That's what an addiction is, any addiction. And I don't care, again, whether it's to substances or what it's to, that's what the essence of addiction is. Then now, if you ask yourself this question, and, you know, you've talked about your own substance addiction. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question, if I may. Sure. If I asked you not what was wrong with your heroin addiction and what else did you mention? Was it cocaine, you said? Or uh, alcohol. Alcohol, alcohol and heroin. Okay. If, you asked, if, if, if I asked you not what, what was wrong with those behaviors, which we, all, we know, we don't have to spell it out, everybody knows, but what was right about it? What did it do for you? What did it give you in the short term? What was the value of it in your life? Can you tell me that? Sure. I mean, I think the value in it for me was it changed the way I felt in any given moment. And I was not really uh, capable of feeling anything. I think originally uh, the drugs and alcohol uh, brought me to life in a way, and you, you talk about that in your book, about the emotional deadening that a lot of us do. So I think it brought me to life initially, and okay. then I think after enough time, it was also then used to kill the pain that was, uh, you know, continuing to rise. Okay, so it did two really important things for you. It gives you a sense of vitality, aliveness, vivacity, mm -hmm. and secondly, it soothes your pain. Now, those are are they not perfectly normal human aspirations? Absolutely. Who, who does not want to feel alive? Who does not want to have a pain relief? And so therefore, the real question is, what realm were you escaping from? Now, the, in order to get into the hungry ghost realm, which is the addiction realm. Now, this is a Buddhist concept. Uh, these, these separate realms, you know, one of them mm -hmm. is the hungry ghost realm. Another is the hell realm, where we experience fear and dread and pain and terror and isolation. In other words, the hunger ghost realm serve their role for you, it serve their purpose for you. Your entry into the hunger ghost realm, into, in other words, into addiction, was your attempt to escape the pain of being in the hell realm mm -hmm. of pain and isolation and fear and, and deadness. In other words, the addiction served a purpose. And so that to call it a bad wolf is to miss the fact that already there was suffering before that so-called bad wolf came along. And I'm saying that the first question in addiction is never why the addiction, well, why the pain? 
because all addictions ultimately, and I, again, I don't care what they're to, they could be to power, to profit, to relationships, to physical looks, to anything in the world. All addictions are a matter of escaping pain. And so the, the mantra that I propose is not why the addiction, but why the pain. In order to look at why the pain, we have to look at people's lives and what actually happened to them. And then we can see, once we do that, that it really wasn't a matter of choice at all. You say that hurt is at the center of all addiction. Let's talk a little bit about what that hurt is, where it comes from, um, the, the things it has in common with everybody, depending on where you are on an addiction scale, so to speak, from being extremely addicted to something very harmful to um, moderately uh, you know, obsessed with something less harmful. W- where is this coming from? What's, what's the root of it? Well, first of all, uh, it's important what you just said, because what you just pointed out was that addiction exists on a spectrum, on a, on a continuum. So it's not that there are the addicts over there and the rest of us over here. Is that most of us, if you look at my definition of addiction, will find ourselves somewhere on that continuum. However, the fundamental source is always in some life experience of pain and always in childhood. And that pain can be caused, broadly speaking, by two types of experiences. One is direct trauma, such as sexual abuse, parents who beat you, parents who abandoned you, parents who screamed at you, parents who were absent because they were jailed, or because they were mentally ill, or because there was a lot of fighting amongst the parents and the child felt alone and frightened, as in the case of a bad divorce, or um, a parent dying. It's any number of these traumas, and and there's been a lot of research on this, so I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. This is just what the research shows, and it's astonishing to me that the addiction world in general, including the 12-step groups, which I, in many ways, support and respect, and including most addiction treatment programs, have got no concept of trauma whatsoever. So that's one kind of way of being hurt. Now, the other way of being hurt is more subtle. It's what's called developmental trauma. This is not a question of bad things happening, but of good things not happening. The child has certain needs, and the greatest need for the child is to be emotionally held and met and understood and to be communicated with in such a way that the child's feelings are received and um, respected and held by the parent. Now, all kinds of really good parents who love their kids, who do their best, can't do that for their children because they're too stressed themselves. They can't be emotionally present for the child. It's not a question of do they love the child. It's a question of are they from the moment to moment in that interaction with the infant and the small child, are they able to be present emotionally in such a way that the child feels received and seen and heard and understood and accepted for who they are. In our stressed society, a lot of parents are incapable, as much as they want to, providing those qualities of the child. And that's called developmental trauma. So that's got nothing to do with bad things happening. It's just the necessary good things not happening. Now, the more sensitive you are, and there could be genetic sensitivities here, addiction is not caused by genes, contrary to all the nonsense. 
that a lot of people speak about that, but the sensitivity could be genetic. And the more sensitive you are, the more you'll be hurt by the bad things that happen or by the good things that don't happen. Now, if you look at populations of severely addicted people, such as I worked with in Vancouver, British Columbia, in the downtown east side, which is North America's most notorious and concentrated area of drug use, by the way, there was nobody there who wasn't hurt in that first sense. There's not a single female patient, as I keep saying, who had not been sexually abused. I didn't meet a single one in 12 years. All the men have been similarly uh, traumatized, some of them sexually, some in other ways. And that's also what the large-scale study shows, again, is, is that the more trauma there is, the greater the risk of addiction, exponentially the greater the risk of addiction. And then there's a lot of other people who, whose addictions may not be quite so severe um, or who cannot look back on a childhood where these terrible things happened. In every case, though, you'll find that those good things that should have happened didn't happen, and a very sensitive person was hurt by that. So that's, that's at the heart of it. The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They can Condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. And here's the rest of the interview with Gabor Mate. 
you mentioned how critical these developmental stages are, um, even all the way back to being in the womb. And you make it more concrete than, oh, you know, somebody's feelings were neglected. You talk about the actual parts of the brain that do not develop where you end up with various systems in the brain that aren't functioning properly. And those tend to be a lot of the systems that are directly affected by addiction. Well, uh, there's a new film out uh, directed by um, Kathleen Gillianhall, who's married to Stephen Gillianhall, who's the father of the two very famous actors. And it's called In Utero. And it's all about the impact of stress in the womb on the developing fetus. So already, stresses on the mother while she's pregnant, carrying the infant, will in fact, in fact, affect the child's brain development. And then, during the first few years, the essential brain circuits that are implicated in addiction, such as stress regulation, and the body's internal opioid endorphin regulation, and the emotional self-regulation, and the tension, and the sense of aliveness, reward, uh, motivation, the circuits that have to do with the chemicals dopamine, or the circuit, or the chemicals endorphins, or the chemical serotonin, which is implicated in mood regulation. All these key circuits develop actually in interaction with the environment. And as an article from Harvard, uh, published in 2012, showed, or, or you know, summarized it up that the most important quality of the environment in shaping these brain circuits is the mutual responsiveness of adult-child interactions. So whenever parents are stressed and unable to be emotionally present for their children, these circuits are impaired within their development, let alone a child who's actually traumatized. So it's not a question of just emotional hurt. It's also a question of that key brain circuits that later on become... Mm, enrolled in the service of addiction just don't develop properly. And then when the addictive behavior or substance comes along, it feels like a huge relief. As a matter of fact, I would wager that for somebody like yourself, probably when you did alcohol or heroin, you probably felt normal for the first time in your life. Oh, yeah. I always say that, you know, two drinks was the best antidepressant I ever found. Unfortunately, it never stayed at two drinks, but it was uh, it, I, I, it definitely worked. In other words, what, what, what the substances were doing for you was giving you what your own brain chemistry should have given you had the circumstances been the appropriate ones for your brain to develop. But clearly they weren't, and I don't know what right. happened to you, and I don't, I don't know what you want to talk about, but I, I, I can, just from the fact that you were addicted to alcohol and heroin, I can tell you what kind of childhood you had. Yep. Now, I, I've got a pretty good idea of, of that. The other thing that I think happens as addiction goes on is we start out with these uh, chemical issues in our brain, let's call them that, and so then we start taking uh, drugs or alcohol that make us feel better, yeah. but those very drugs and alcohol begin to further erode both the um, ability of our brain to make the chemicals that make us feel good, yes. as well as the parts of the brain that are able to exercise impulse control. So we're taking a bad situation and the actual physical changes that happen as we uh, move into addiction and alcoholism make the situation worse in regards to our brain's ability to even stop what it's doing. That's exactly how it works. And um, 
You know who said it best? It was Jesus. When he said, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. You know, that, 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 that those that have more shall be given to them, and those that have little, even little they have, will be taken away. And that's what addiction does. So that, um, just as you stated it, if you do brain scans and a lot of adults and, you know, medicine plays a lot of attention these days to these brain scan studies. And we look at the abnormal brains and we think, oh, yeah, it's biological. Therefore, it's got to be genetic. No, it's not true. The biology is actually shaped by the environment. So, it's, yes, it's biological. But that doesn't make it genetic. Then when you add the burden of addictive substances, but, you know, not just addictive substances, even addictive behaviors, like if you are, let's say, a um, shopping addict, and the reason you're a shopping addict is because is your, your brain lacks enough dopamine, which is the incentive motivation chemical. But when you go shopping, your dopamine levels go really high. That's, that's the incentive. That means you're artificially increasing your dopamine levels. And that also means when you're not shopping, you're on withdrawal. Not to the same degree, of course, but in the same way as if you were a cocaine addict and increasing your dopamine levels through the stimulant, cocaine. So yes, in the long-term addictive behaviors, and especially addictive substances, of course, especially addictive substances, they further erode the ability of the individual to make rational choices, to hold on to relationships, to regulate impulses, to deal with their emotions, to handle stress in a healthy way, so that these things were impaired to start with because of maldevelopment in childhood, and now they're further impaired by the addictive behaviors and substances themselves. So it's a double whammy. And then again, when we, so when we come back to the question, which wolf do you feed? Well, that so-called bad wolf, which came out of deficiency and came out of a desperate attempt to feel better for a short time, has become very, very powerful. You mentioned genetics. And so I was, you know, one of the things as I read your book that I really found comforting, and I'm curious if the science, sent you, since you wrote the book, continues to support it, is that there isn't such a genetic base. And I have a son who uh, I'm an addict, his mother is an addict, and I've always worried about his genetic predisposition. But based on what you're saying, it's really more about the environment that we've raised him in and the way we've raised him than a particular set of genes that he inherited. Yeah, there are no addiction genes. There are genes that make it more likely that a person might become addicted simply because certain chemicals are not handled the same way as the average person or because the child is more sensitive. But here's a study from the Journal of uh, Consulting Clinical Psychology, 2009, February. They looked at the long-term study in uh, Georgia, African-American youths residing in rural Georgia. And they looked at uh, certain, their genes from, you know, looking, they looked at DNA analysis of their saliva. And there was a couple of genes that were increased, that were linked with increased substance use over time. But look at what it says here. However, this association was greatly reduced when youth received high levels of involved, supportive parenting. This study demonstrates that parenting processes have the potential to ameliorate genetic risk. And I would say that uh, when children receive the parenting they need, you don't just ameliorate, you actually eliminate any genetic risk altogether. And even in children where 
things didn't go well in the beginning, if you then provide the right kind of parenting, you can still greatly reduce that risk. So genes may pose uh, an increased risk, but they cannot determine a predisposition. is not the same as the predetermination. And the insistence of the medical profession and addiction specialists and the 12-step groups that you got this genetic disease is just bad science. Well, like I said, I find that to be comforting in the section in your book where you talk about that. Uh, we don't have time to go into, but the way that you explore where people have thought that it's genetic um, and the way they arrive at those through a variety of twin studies and different things. You really talk about how that's not an effective mechanism. And so if people are interested in that, that would be a great, uh, great part of the book to check out. You've talked a lot about the role of the parents and and that the parents can be stressed or they can be depressed or lots of different things. And that sort of leads us into cultural issues. And and the book that you're working on that will be coming out is really about the culture that we live in and how that culture breeds dysfunction. Dysfunction. And so I'm going to read something else that you wrote and then maybe let you take it from there. You say, a sense of deficient emptiness pervades our entire culture. The drug addict is more painfully conscious of this void than most people and has limited means of escaping it. The rest of us find other ways of suppressing our fear of emptiness or of distracting ourselves from it. So what, what's happening in our culture that you think is breeding this dysfunction? Well, if you permit me to be self-referential here, um, I'd like you to make you aware of another book I wrote, a co-wrote called Hold On To Your Kids, Why Parents Need To Matter More Than Peers. So one of the things we point out in that book, in fact, what we do point out in that book is that uh, children have this primary need to attach to a parent, to, to, to attach to nurturing adults. That's just a need of all mammals and birds for that matter. Without that, the child doesn't survive. So as long as the culture provides an environment in which children are related to nurturing adults, especially in a village or a clan or, or, or community setting, that child is very secure. One of the things that our culture has done is it has broken up the clan, the tribe, the community, the neighborhood. And it has also put tremendous stress on the nuclear family so that the parents don't see their kids most of the t- most of the day. And very often, of course, children come from broken families where there's not even two parents. Children have to attach to somebody. They cannot handle life without being connected to somebody. And who do they attach to? Who do they connect to? They connect to the peer group. So now you have this phenomenon of peer attachment, where children are not getting their modeling and their values and their mentoring and their emotional nurturance, such as it is, not from adults in their life anymore, but from other children. And of course, immature creatures cannot lead one another to maturity. So this is all kinds of negative consequences. So any parent who's bringing up kids, adolescent, or at any age or, or below, that's just a book that I think it's important to read. And I, I, it's not my work, actually. It's the work of a psychologist friend of mine, a brilliant man called Gordon Neufeld. I did the writing with him. But one of the things that happens in our culture is the breakup of family and community and clan. And that leaves children without the proper modeling, mentoring, and cultural guidance. Talk about a depressed mother, for example, um, who, you know, postpartum depression, whatever. You make the point that in in the past when there was more 
as you said, clan or village or bigger family, there would be other people to pick up that slack, so to speak. There would be other people to help give the child maybe what they weren't able to get in that period with the mother. But in what yeah. in, in the culture we live in, sometimes that's the only person. It goes beyond that. First of all, we know that postpartum depression in the mother is associated with an increased risk of behavior problems, ADHD, and a whole lot of other things that predispose to addiction in the child. But it goes beyond that because in a society where there's proper support for mothers, you don't have the risk of postpartum depression. Postpartum depression is not an automatic biological thing that happens to women. It happens in a context, and the context is lack of emotional support. And I can tell you that as a husband whose wife had a postpartum depression, and uh, at a time when I was a workaholic doctor who was not available to support her. So and, and, and so, and that had an impact on our children. And so, even the risk of postpartum depression, and, and the rates of which is going higher and higher in our culture, has to do with cultural factors. And the book I'm working on, uh, and I don't have a working title for it yet, but the general theme is toxic culture. And what I mean by that is that a culture is the context in which we live, the social, emotional, relational um, interactions that we have, the work that we do, the entertainment that we uh, pursue, the practices that we engage in. That's broadly speaking is what it means to have a culture. There's another meaning for the word culture, which is simply a laboratory broth in which you in which you rear or or, or you nurture microorganisms. And what would you call a laboratory culture? in which many of the microorganisms were sick. You would call it a toxic culture. I'm suggesting that our culture, if you look at the rates of disease, 60% of American adults are on some kind of, at least on one medication or another. This is in the richest and the most medically advanced society in the history of the world. Well, what's going on? What's going on is that the culture that we live in, and in a whole lot of ways, some of which we've talked about, others of which I'm writing about actually undermines people's health. And so that uh, when we look at individual disease, individual addiction, uh, whether we're looking at mental health issues, uh, childhood developmental issues like ADHD or so-called oppositional defiant disorder or depression, anxiety, whether we're looking at cancer, autoimmune disease, we're actually looking at the impact of the culture on the individual because you cannot separate the individual from the environment and you cannot separate the mind from the body. And so when people are living in a stressed culture, they have stressed minds, and stressed minds result in stressed bodies. I love Perfect Bars. I've talked about them before on here, how much I love them, how many of them I've eaten, which is an extraordinary number. But there's not just Perfect Bars. The company, Perfect Snacks, make a variety of products like protein bars, peanut butter cups, and kids' snack bars. And they're all made with freshly ground nut butter, organic honey, and 20 organic superfoods. You're sure to find something that you'll love. Of course, my favorite is the standard Perfect Bar dark chocolate, 
chip peanut butter, although their peanut butter cups are amazing too, and you keep them in the fridge and so they're cold. If you're not already convinced, they're also non-GMO, project verified, they're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're kosher, and they're low GI, and they are delicious. So right now, Perfect Snacks is offering 15% off your online order. Just go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perfectsnacks.com slash wolf today to get 15% off your order. We want you to be prepared for snack time. So go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf to stock up and save 15%. In the book that you're working on and in the research that you do, do you have recommendations for those of us who live within that culture today of how we can be more immune to it or how we can avoid some of the, the more toxic parts of the culture? The first point, of course, is to recognize the culture that we're living in, to see it not to absorb it uncritically, but to see in what ways it actually undermines human needs. As much as it has provided and as as is creative and as economically dynamic and scientifically advanced, this culture has been, at the same time, in some ways it significantly ignores and even uh, insults some deep human needs. And so we have to understand that and not buy into it. Now, the various books that I've written, whether it's on ADHD or stress and physical health, like cancer, autoimmune disease, and so on, those recommendations are my prediction book that you've been mentioning. There's recommendations in each of them. Um, and the new book will be more focused on, yes, what we can actually do. Because we can't, you know, obviously, just because I publish a book, or anybody publishes a book, that's not going to change the culture. So, so we're going to have to live with this for a long time, certainly in my lifetime. But the more aware we are, the more we set up conscious practices that in our lives that do not feed the bad wolf, that go back to your analogy now in a positive sense, uh, the more mindfully aware we are, the more we recognize that our value and our worth as human beings is not dependent on what other people think of us. It's not dependent on how good we look. It doesn't depend on how much we own or what we can do. The more we can actually respect and honor our own value, um, the more immune we are to the blandishments of a culture that, for, for the most part, would have us believe that our value depends on externals. And of course, what is addiction? But a, a, a desperate way to fill in from the outside that emptiness that you mentioned that we experience from within. So um, what I'm saying also has, of course, social and cultural implications, uh, political implications. I'll talk about that in my new book, but probably that's a discussion I would defer for some other time. Sure. You talk about how important conscious awareness is and that's sort of what you were just saying there being aware of what the culture is being aware of our decisions you say that when not governed by conscious awareness our mind tends to run on automatic pilot it is scarcely more free than a computer that pre that performs pre-programmed tasks in response to a button being pushed exactly so that question of freedom has to do with levels of consciousness people who are not conscious simply have no freedom they may believe they do, but they don't make decisions. The decisions are made for them by automatic 
emotional reactions that are the result of early experiences. So there's a, I think, Austrian, Swiss, or German, Swiss um, writer and psychologist called Alice Miller, who was one of the first ones who wrote about the impact of childhood trauma on, on adult uh, dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And uh, her most famous book is called The Drama of the Gifted Child. But the original title, the German title of that book was actually much better. It was called Prisoners of Childhood. Mm-hmm. And, and what she was implying is that until we are aware and create some gap between our emotional reactions and our behavior, we're actually held prisoner by what happened to us in childhood. And I find myself at age 72 still very often reacting like I was a two-year-old child unless I create that gap of consciousness in which I have a moment to reflect upon and make a conscious decision. And in our society, which makes us unconscious in so many ways, that's constant work. That's, for most of us, I would say, that's significant uh, work. And uh, that's why I think so many people are increasingly drawn to practices that support mindful awareness because they just want to be free. That only automatons. And, and, and even for me, you know, as a, you know, a middle-class successful person, I cannot claim freedom as long as my reactions and behaviors and preferences are governed by unconscious factors that come out of a childhood sense of insufficiency that goes back to my first year of life. So freedom does demand consciousness. And Eckhart Tolle, who's a great spiritual teacher, you probably know of his work, and um, he lives here in Vancouver as well. He, you know, he says as much. He says, well, you can't talk about freedom without consciousness. He says, no, there's no freedom without consciousness. So again, uh, that feeling, the, the, the good wolf, takes a lot of consciousness. Yep. And I think for me, that's what the parable mostly speaks to. I mean, I, I, there's all sorts of reasons why it's a, it's a story and not a, not a truth. But I think for yeah. me, the story is about, is about having that awareness. What am I doing? You know, like yeah. moment to moment, day to day, what am I doing? What am I thinking? What am I acting? What am I, because I love your description of um, being on autopilot. That's such a great description of of the way I get, I just sort of, I just go, I do what's in front of me and not necessarily thinking about what's important to me or who I want to be or all those things that, that consciousness implies. Yes. What am I doing? And also who am I being like who, uh, right. I'm going to give a talk in Vancouver in a couple of weeks called, who do I think, who do you think you are? Or who do I think I am? Who do we think we are? So let me give you a quick, quick example. I arrived home from a speaking trip from Baltimore to Vancouver four months ago. I gave a great talk, well received. I think I'm just, I think I'm just great. <laughs> I, arrive in, I arrive in Vancouver. I get a text from my wife who had said she'd pick me up that she hasn't left home yet. I immediately feel hurt, rejected, and I go into a rage. Why? What's the problem? I was 71 years old at the time. I can't take a taxi home. What's the big deal here? Right. Or can't I understand that my wife maybe got caught up in her painting? She's an artist, so she got caught up in her painting. You know, which artists do that? They get caught up in their painting or their artistic creative work and the time just goes, you know. What am I so upset about? Who do I think I am at that moment? Well, the upset part of me 
And, and you might call that the, the, the bad wolf because it's full of rage at that moment. But who it actually is, he thinks he's a one-year-old child mm-hmm. who's, who's being abandoned by mommy. So this constant question of who do I think I am, it needs to come up at every moment almost. Right. Where am I coming from at this particular moment? And just because I answered the question appropriately one time, it doesn't mean that five minutes later the same question does not arise again in a different way. So that awareness, uh, and ultimately I think whatever people have to do to overcome their addiction, I would say, first of all, get in touch with your pain. Don't run away from your pain. Your whole addiction is an attempt to run away from pain, and it just creates more pain. So don't be afraid of it. And if you're one of these people that you think you had a really happy childhood, let me tell you, if you're addicted, that tells me you didn't. Which doesn't mean that happy things didn't happen. It just means that you, you, you've repressed, you have you've haven't dealt with, you haven't allowed yourself to experience the child's feelings that you distance yourself from as a way of surviving it. Uh, so, so be aware of your pain and, and, and help, get some help with it. And be, have compassion for yourself. Don't judge yourself. Don't, metaphorically, it's fine to talk about the bad wolf, but don't reject the bad wolf part of you. Have compassion for it. Understand that it came along, really, to meet needs that otherwise were not being met. And then create that gap of awareness, that mindfulness that you and I have been talking about, in which you can make free choices to feed that good wolf. So last question, we're nearly out of time, and this is uh, the last and hardest question, but I'm just, I don't think there's an answer, but I'm interested in your thoughts on it. And as someone Mm -hmm. who is recovering, I've been around recovery for a long time now, most of my adult life, and I see a lot of people who get sober, and I see a lot of people who never do, and I see people that die, and, and I can't help but have that why. And I know there's not a simple answer for that, but do you have any thoughts on, on is it simply level of trauma? Some people are so damaged that the recovery process is, is too much. Do you have, I guess, what do you think? Well, you're, you're right. It's a very difficult question. Um, I don't think anybody is so traumatized that they're beyond redemption. Um, we've seen examples of people who've endured traumas that we can't even comprehend, and yet they they find redemption in one way or another. So there's nobody beyond redemption. At the same time, the greater the degree of trauma and the greater the defenses that you've erected against the trauma, the more you've had to escape from that hell realm the more difficult it will be for you to, to, to recover. That, that's totally true. I believe, ultimately, the question is compassion. And I, everybody I know, and I, I'm going to make a guess here, that at some point or another in your recovery process, you either encountered people that treated you with compassion, despite all the self-loathing you might have had, or somehow you find a, you find a way to develop compassion for yourself, or maybe both. Oh, I think it's definitely both. I mean, I think that's the at the heart of twelve step recovery for me. That's Absolutely. that's the heart of it right there. Is that is that yes. community that one alcoholic talking to another that that ability to see like oh I'm not 
I'm not the only person that's like this. Exactly. Uh, and I think that is the strength of the 12-step groups. Among, among, among the specific strengths of their, the 12 steps themselves, which I think are just steps for a healthy life, addiction or not addiction. Mm-hmm. But, but quite apart from that, it's that being received and heard and not judged, that compassion. And I think some people just don't meet that. And, I, and, I'm, and unfortunately, it's even true that depending on where you go to the 12-step group, you may or may not find that compassion. I agree. Uh, you, you, you may come across a lot of judgment and, and, and rejection. Uh, not, that's not the intention, but that's what you're going to receive. So to go back to your original question, I think the people that have been redeemed and, and, and have recovered, I think they're the ones who found some compassion along the way, which ultimately led them to some self-compassion. That doesn't fully answer your question, because as you said, there's no full answer to your question. Right. But, but as, as a way to move forward, compassion is it. If, if, imagine if the prison system, if the legal system, never mind the prison system, the legal system, the educational system with all these troubled kids, the medical system, the addiction treatment industry, what if they had this huge infusion of compassion? How many more people could be redeemed? The numbers are infinite. Well, I think that is a beautiful place to end. I agree with you. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, part of what certainly not everybody listening to this identifies as an addict, but we all know people who are. And and to your point, a lot of us have that in ourselves. And I think that idea of um, compassion, you say that the best attitude is one of compassionate curiosity towards ourselves. Why did I do that? Why did I... Um, That's right. You know, instead no, no, no. of instead of judgment. Well, you know, and, and, and the why did I do that? You can ask it in two ways. You can say, why did I do that? Which is not a question at all. It's a right, statement. Right. You know, but you can actually say, huh, why did I do that? Right. And then that's the way to ask it. Incidentally, as to your reference about many uh, how, how not all of your listeners may have self-identified addicts. I just wonder if they tried on that definition of addiction that we proposed earlier. How many really are who've never had those kind of patterns in their life? I'll grant you there'll be some, but I doubt there'll be too many. No, particularly not people who listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> any show, any show, any yeah. show. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the fact that they, you know, that we relate to these concepts and, and people come back is, is, a, is a sign that, you know, we're recognizing some degree of, of wishing we were more conscious and in control of our lives. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed um, talking with you. I, I loved your book. I'm looking forward to the new one, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk more then. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You can learn more about Gabor Mate and this podcast at oneufeed.net slash Gabor.